Hello and welcome to The Joe Mobley Show. I'm your host, Joe Mobley, and you're listening to the only place in cyberspace where we talk about being conservative. We hit on current events, the politically correct cancel culture, and problems with civil discourse. But most importantly, we discuss what you can do to come out of the conservative closet. The Joe Mobley Show is a new and exciting podcast that airs weekly on Monday mornings. We have a range of controversial topics on deck. Even so, it's important that we hear from you what matters most. Be sure to send questions, comments, and things you'd like to hear discussed to ask at thejoemobleyshow.com. That's ask at thejoemobleyshow.com. To make sure you stay informed on the latest content, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great podcasts. Welcome to The Joe Mobley Show. We're joined today by a very exciting guest, Dr. Steve Bucci. Dr. Bucci is a lifelong patriot with three decades of service as a U.S. Special Operations Officer and top Pentagon official. He's also a visiting fellow for the Heritage Foundation, focusing on cybersecurity, military special operations, and defense support of civil authorities. Dr. Bucci, how are you today? I'm doing very well. I want to thank you for having me on the show. It is my pleasure. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Um, I know that we're going to get some exciting insight for the listening audience. Um, So the Joe Mobley Show is a new show, and what we're doing is we're discussing how to navigate one's conservatism in America today. First and foremost, I just want to say we're not not endorsing... um, people or companies, and of course, we're not branding any of the guests on the show as conservative, so, you know, don't feel any pressure there, but I imagine, uh, given your background and that you are a fellow at the Heritage Foundation, I imagine if we uh, threw a dart at the dartboard of the political spectrum, we can uh, find you on one side or the other. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, You know, I I spent the majority of my adult life as a military officer, and there we don't have political positions. We do as individuals and how we vote, but we don't get to express those in public either, you know, definitely not to the people who work for us, but even uh, in general, you know, we can't have stickers on our cars or anything like that in an election. since I left the military and the government, uh, and I worked for a while at the IBM Corporation, uh, and they have their own restrictions. But then I went to the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. And for the first time in my life, I was supposed to go talk to the press about political things, not uh, avoid them. So yeah, now I am an, an unabashed conservative, but I like to think I'm uh, one of those people that can talk to anyone. Uh, I respect people's opinions as long as they have some basis in fact uh, and happy to chat uh, amicably with anyone, even people who disagree with me. In fact, I learn a heck of a lot more from that kind of conversation than I do talking with people that already think the same way I do. Awesome. I, I too, have experienced the, the apolitical existence of a soldier uh, for, for about two decades less than you did. Um, so just the premise of the show, the first question here, do you feel as though conservatives are more or less hiding? 
you know, I don't know if they're hiding. They are definitely less outgoing than many of our liberal friends. Uh, you know, during the entire Trump administration, uh, if you're in polite company, you were made to feel uncomfortable. You know, uh, usually the first people to talk were the people who disagreed with President Trump or had some uh, issue with his style or his policies. And it was usually some implication on their part. Well, nobody with any brains or nobody with you know any character would support somebody like Trump. Don't you agree? Uh, so I think the the conservatives today are more shy than uh, than their liberal counterparts. I think that's probably what you saw uh, happening uh, with the polling, both in the last election and in the one we just had, that uh, people with conservative leanings didn't talk about it very much. Even if someone was calling to get polling data from them, uh, they sort of held their cards close to the vest and uh, just kept their mouths shut. So a lot of folks did not realize that their neighbor on either side of them might be voting for President Trump in this past election. You know, there's a lot of people put out signs and that sort of stuff, but there's a heck of a lot uh, in addition to those uh, folks who didn't put out signs or didn't talk about it with their family or friends because they didn't want to cause any sort of friction. So they kept quiet. So yeah, I think uh, conservatives are very shy, very uh, reluctant to to talk about their political positions because they get a lot of negative blowback when they do. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you said it, you said more or less that often we try and avoid conflict, confrontation. We don't want that friction there. Um, and in your experience or in your observation, is is that a true concern or is that something that we've kind of made up? Oh, I, I think in my experience, it's very true. Um, you know, I mean, some people are really overt about it that that disagree with conservative positions and will literally attack you if you try and hold one, uh, questioning everything from your character to your intellect to your education, you know, to, to your parentage. Uh, you know, they, they can get pretty nasty about it. Uh, but, you know, most folks, at the very least, you know, give you the old, how can you hold a position like that? Or how can you support, particularly with President Trump, how could you support Donald Trump? That's just unconscionable. Uh, and while I don't mind talking to people I disagree with, and I'm more than happy to have a conversation, uh, I'm not going to get in a shouting match. Uh, I don't like to do uh, media interviews that come with that premise where it's very confrontational. Uh, and I don't like to do it in my personal life. And so, I mean, I have a lot of friends who I know and have known for a long time, but I know are very liberal in their views. Uh, and I, I would have conversations with them, but with a lot of them, they really couldn't keep it at a civil level. So we just sort of agreed to disagree and not talk about politics around each other, uh, which I think is unfortunate because we could all learn from one another. Conservatives can learn from people with liberal positions. 
people who, who hold liberal positions could probably learn a lot from conservatives. We've got to get our country back to the point where we can have those kind of conversations openly without immediately jumping to the position of that other guy because he disagrees with me is not only wrong, but he's stupid and evil. We got to get past that. And, and that's something I throw out to people on the whole political spectrum, not just one side or the other. Absolutely. I, I think what lies at the heart of getting back to that place that you're describing, where we can talk to people that we know going in, that we have opposing views, um, or even to just take down a layer of confrontation, just to say that we have different views. Um, if, we, if we don't get back to a place like that, uh, then we're certainly going to be in a worse situation than we're finding ourselves in now. Um, and kind of like you had mentioned earlier, um, <clears throat> just for the listener out there, today is Wednesday, a, a week and a day after uh, the 2020 election. So that's, that's the world that we're living in right now. Um, very contentious, very divided, uh, lots of uncertainty. Um, so on impacting the culture, I, I think engaging with culture is at the heart of getting America back on track you know, uh, civil discourse, being able to have polite conversations with neighbors, colleagues, friends. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but, uh, you know, U.S. Army Special Forces has a little bit of a different brand of special operations. You guys uh, do and did much more than flying around the world, blowing things up, executing capture kill missions, kind of what you think of when you think of an operator. Um, but the Green Berets actually go in and work, live, and train with indigenous peoples all over the world. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Obviously, that's something uh, that you have unique experience with. But you've seen that being immersed in the culture, getting to the people, it it adds an element of humanity um, I, and it adds an element of credibility and impact. It, it really does. And uh, that's one of the reasons I went in that direction in my military career. Uh, I enjoy that. I, I enjoy learning about other cultures, not just dominating them. I like to get immersed in them. You know, when I go visit other countries, whether it's official or unofficial, I like to eat the food that's available there. I like to learn the history. I like to be able to to chat with the people, particularly, you know, unofficial folks, you know, not necessarily government officials or military people, but just the regular uh, people in the street. Uh, you can learn a lot. You can grow a lot. You realize that even small, poor countries with whom we interact have something to say and, and something to offer. and. Uh, while we do have a big dominant culture uh, here in America, uh, it doesn't mean it's the only one. Uh, so I, I like that. I like the fact that the people who work with me, the, you know, the, the sergeants and the warrant officers, uh, have the capability of having reasoned conversations with people who are a little different than them. Uh, that is really what makes our folks special. Uh, is that ability? We we do learn languages, and but we're mostly culturally fluent in that we know some language, 
what we know about the culture and we're willing to partake in it. And when you do that, boy, it opens up a lot of doors and a lot of opportunities to really grow, which is something I guess I, I even without thinking about it, I apply to these kind of political conversations we were just discussing, uh, where you do listen to the other person and you do at least acknowledge that they they have relevance. You might not agree with them 100%, but you can at least listen and glean from what they say the things that, that are good and are useful. Uh, and if we could apply that whole attitude, uh, one, you're more effective definitely when you're dealing with people from other cultures, but you're actually even more effective when you're dealing within your own culture. Absolutely. So do you think that, and I, I, this is the leading question I only answer here, but but do you think that um, our nation would have the impact it does on the world uh, if we didn't send people uh, like the State Department, if we didn't send people like particularly U.S. Army Special Forces to actually kind of go and do life for certain periods of time um, with these other cultures and other countries? No, I, th- I think we'd be sadly, you know, unuseful and, and unimpactful if we didn't do that. In fact, we ought to do more of it. Uh, you know, sometimes even, you know, some of our soldiers and special forces are not as good at this as others. Uh, I've, I've worked in several embassies over the years as an attache, uh, and some of the folks who work in our embassies you know, they're there, they're doing the job because they were sent there, you know, because embassies don't just have State Department people. They've got state and DOD and, and Department of Justice and all sorts of folks from our government. Not all of those people are as happy about being overseas as, as some of the rest of us. Uh, and you can see the, the ineffectiveness of people whose attitude are kind of closed to other cultures. Uh, you know, this the last two decades of war for the American military was eye-opening for many of my um, more conventional colleagues who in the past would only go in, do a mission, and come out because of the, the nature of the conflicts we fought since 9-11. We had a lot of people interacting with the locals more uh, than they ever did before. They, they were put in positions that were more akin to the, the kind of missions that my folks do. Uh, and, and our conventional counterparts had to learn how to do that. And it was, it was a tough go for many of them. They're not used to having to listen to the locals, to understand their positions, to filter that in. Uh, and they've, they've learned how to do it a great deal. Uh, and and I hope that skill stays in our military, military writ large uh, as we go forward, because it's a pretty useful skill set to have no matter where you go or what you do. Mm-hmm. So to kind of tie this back to how we can navigate, you know, different situations here at home um, <clears throat> with our peers, with our contemporaries, what impact, positive or negative, uh, do you see if conservatives 
don't engage uh, with the culture, kind of don't say, you know, this is who we are. This is actually what we believe. Um, obviously, we're not deploying to another country, but just that idea of, hey, this is kind of a group of people that we're not really familiar with. And I think that's a fair statement um, for the American liberal and the American conservative. We're not really familiar with each other. There are a lot of things said about each side. There are a lot of things that are largely believed about each side that aren't true. So what impact, uh, positive or negative, if we don't engage with each other in meaningful ways? Well, if we don't engage, we're going to get further and further apart. We're going to understand each other less and less. And that is totally counterintuitive to our democratic system. We're supposed to work together. There's there's always going to be friction. We've had friction between, uh, you know, political poles within America, you know, since the inception of our country. Uh, you know, at least once we started having parties, which started occurring when Washington was still president, uh, and we've had them ever since. Uh, and if we allow that wall to get too high and too thick, we're just going to have conflict. We're, you know, having adversarial relationships or or competing relationships is fine. Having complete isolation from one another is not. Uh, and you know, since we're aiming this broadcast at conservatives, you know, conservatives, you need to reach out to people who disagree with you and reach out in a way that isn't just to, you know, intellectually bludgeon them into submission to your position, but to let them know that what you do believe, because they're, they probably got a screwed up attitude of what they think we believe in the same way we probably have an inaccurate view of what they believe. If we talk to one another, we're probably still going to disagree, but hopefully we get a little closer to the middle, both of us, uh, and, and are able to work together uh, in, in the way that Americans have done for a long time, but we're not doing too well right now. So I, I think that outreach, that willingness to listen, uh, I'm not saying we need to roll over and play dead and do what we're told, not by any means at all. You can still hold your principles. You can still stick to them very strongly, but you have to at least be willing to talk and listen. And if you can do both those things, probably more emphasis on the listening than the talking, uh, and hopefully win over some of the people on the other side to think the same way that openness part, not necessarily your political positions, uh, the country will be better off and uh, we'll be able to serve the nation more effectively uh, by that conversation and that dialogue. I wanted to take a quick moment and let you know that there is additional content from The Joe Mobley Show available for those of you who contribute to the show. To get access to the rest of The Joe Mobley Show's content, go to thejoemobleyshow.com and hit support the show. Any amount over $1 gets you access to exclusive content. That's right. We'll take whatever you're willing to contribute, but just $1 gets you access to exclusive interview content, Q&As from our listeners, and more. Now let's get back to the show. Absolutely. Um, reaching out to the other side. Um you know, sometimes it's easier said than done. There's some vulnerability that comes there. You know, you, you open yourself up. 
Um, in my experience, you know, of course, I'm, I'm kind of a gregarious person and I'm outgoing. Uh, but I've also I found some success. You know, uh, I, I work for a very large and influential uh, consulting firm, a very large, you know, corporate America type deal. Um, one of the ways that I've had success in opening the door to conversations uh, is just piquing people's curiosity. You know, we have our meetings, um, we use teams, we can see each other. And here at home over each shoulder, I've got uh, Constitution on one side and Declaration of Independence on the other side. Um, I do have what some people would call an assault rifle that hangs on a wall in my office. Uh, of course, I don't have that in the camera shot for meetings. I, I think that would be a little over the top. Uh, but some colleagues have even reached out and said, you know, they're interested about my office decorations and we'll kind of, you know, you can turn your laptop and we can talk about other things. Uh, and it piques their curiosity. It gets them questioning things, you know, certainly uh, they're like, all right, well, certainly you're not a racist. You're an inner city black guy. You're married to a white woman. Uh, certainly you're not, uh, you know, this or that things that were often called. What are some other practical things that uh, you've had success with or that you, um, you think that conservatives should do to kind of reach out and extend uh, that olive branch or even pique the curiosity of some of their neighbors, friends, and colleagues? Well, one, one of the things you can do is, is simply ask a question about someone's position, about you know, what they're thinking, without being confrontational about it. You know, you, you, if somebody says something you disagree with, you can ask them, well, gee, why, why do you take that position? Or you can say, how in the world can you take that position? There's two very <laughs> different messages being sent there, even though you're asking the exact same question. Uh, so, you know, when you can do that, it it at least stops a door from being slammed shut and hopefully opens it even wider and allows you to have the dialogue. Uh, I, I think... Having something, you know, like the Constitution, Declaration of Independence is a great uh, hook to get somebody into a conversation because it's a little hard to, for an American to say, gee, what a terrible thing you've got. It's not like you're hanging a Nazi flag behind yourself. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you, um, you know, it, it, it at least you hope is some common ground. It may be common ground that you think of maybe not so commonly but one that you can at least start that conversation. Uh, I think it is wise to not put up symbols. You know, like you say, you don't have your, your black rifle up on the wall uh, where it might <laughs> set somebody off or cause them to make assumptions about you that are potentially negative. Uh, you know, you, you could have an American flag behind you, but, you know, if you have one of the flags that are now associated with, you know, certain spots on the political spectrum, you might not want to do that. Uh, so there's a, a level here, as you say, of, of risk taking where you're doing some signaling, which will make you somewhat vulnerable because people could take it the wrong way, but you're hoping that by throwing that bait out there, 
that it's going to lead to conversation and dialogue and not a fight. Um, I can tell you sometimes no matter how hard you try to do that, it still ends up in a fight and that's unfortunate, but you know, you've made the effort. Sometimes that's the best you can do. Uh, but it's, it's worth the effort. It really is. Uh, and, and there'll be times when somebody says something to you that you could respond to confrontationally that you don't have to. I remember one time I was speaking at the University of Michigan, uh, and at the end of it, a person came up to me and said, you know, for, for an AEI person, you're actually pretty reasonable. And I kind of laughed. I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm from the Heritage Foundation. And he goes, oh, all you conservatives are the same. It doesn't matter. But, you know, you're being pretty reasonable. Well, I could have taken offense at that. Uh, instead, I just smiled. And I said, well, I appreciate you, you know, listening to me. I'm, you know, I'm trying to be reasonable. Uh, and, and we're trying to, you know, come to agreement on things, not just sit and fight with one another. So there was an opportunity. You know, I'm sure that guy walked away you know, didn't really agree with the points I was making on the subject matter. But he, at the end of it, said, well, gee, there's a conservative guy that's at least willing to talk. Uh, and that can be pretty, that, that's a, a huge win, I think, for the country when we can do that more often. Yeah, you said, you said the key, like the keys to the kingdom for me, um, you had mentioned taking risk. And the reality is, yeah, yeah, it, it's a risk to put yourself out there and, and um, you know, come out as anything. Uh, but if you're not willing to risk anything, you can't possibly hope to gain anything. Yeah, you really, if you don't take a risk, Joe, the best you're hoping for is survival. You know, you're going to keep going where you're going uh, and, and never move forward. And, you know, I think our country is worth the risk. Uh, I, I think our society and the system we have are well worth the risk to, to do that. Uh, again, remember, even when you take the risk, you know, you don't have to throw it out there and then put your fists up and be ready to fight. You throw it out there and with the understanding that, okay, this person might not be willing to talk. Or, or might be, you know, talk less than they might have before now that they know you're a conservative. But if you don't at least lay down your positions uh, and, and hopefully do it in, in a non-confrontational way, that person will never know. And they might have a question. Well, okay, why do you believe that? Why, you know, for instance, you know, let's say President Trump. You know, people ask me, they say, well, you're, you're a Christian. You go to church, right? Yeah, I go to church. Well, how can you support somebody like President Trump? He's just a you know, terrible person. He's been divorced, all those things. And I said, well, uh, I didn't vote for him because I wanted him to be my pastor. Uh, I, I voted for him because I agreed with the policies he was proposing, as opposed to his opponent, whose policies I disagreed with. And then since he's been in office, I said, yeah, you know, I don't always like his style. I didn't necessarily like his tweets, but the policies that he implemented, you know, support of Israel, uh, you know, trying to, to maintain a frankly more conservative view of the law, 
all those things I agreed with. So that's why I supported them. Uh, when you lay it out like that, again, that person may still say, well, I just can't support him because he's a terrible person. Okay, that's that's your opinion of him. You know, we're kind of all terrible to a degree. Uh, so I have to go on what he does, not what he says or the style in which he says it. Uh, when you get to that kind of conversation without tempers flaring, that that's sort of a win. Yeah, I've had those very same conversations. Uh, uh, some interesting ones from a lot of my black friends. You know, how could you? Uh, and uh, it sounds like we both use the Socratic method a good bit, you know, trying to come to some understanding through questioning. Um, and just like you said, it's all about your demeanor when you're delivering these questions. A lot of the conservative shows that I love and listen to um, I, I, I wouldn't ask questions necessarily in the tone of voice that they use. Um, so we've talked about some practical things to do. We've talked about some uh, some wave cap conservatism. Uh, I know the listener is going to want to get into at least uh, one issue, kind of explain one thing. I found a really good uh, article that you did. Uh, piece on sanctuary cities called The Irrational Erroneous Assumptions of Sanctuary Cities and States. Uh, quick quote here from that article. Allowing states and cities to pick and choose which federal laws they will follow is corrosive to American society. So uh, thinking about sanctuary cities, thinking about those policies, if somehow we wake up in the world and... Um, the Democratic Party has found a way uh, to actually do a, a UK-style ban on firearms. You know, we're already seeing social workers are going to be sent in New York City to domestic violence situations, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's a, an abhorrent idea. It's terrible. Um, but... Do you see in a United States, which I don't think we're going to get to this place, but in the United States that pushes this federal policy that we're banning firearms, they're doing some type of buyback. Do you see traditional uh, conservative places propping up sanctuary status for firearms? Uh, well, I, I think we're already seeing it. There are a lot of counties and municipalities all across America who have have announced they are Second Amendment sanctuary uh, locations. Uh, so, yeah, I think you'll see that same sort of pushback. And I'm guessing that as that proliferates, uh, liberals are going to go crazy and say, we can't allow this. This is terrible. How can they, you know, ignore federal law? Uh, but they're basically taking the same model that, uh, you know, liberals have used uh, it, it, with regard to immigration law. Uh, you know, this idea of when when we do it, it's okay, but when you do it, it's wrong. Uh, and and people do that without any irony, without any uh, recognition of the fact that they're kind of talking out of both sides of their face uh, is is wrong. I I think it would be wrong for us to do that because I think the federal law should be the law of the land uh, in, in those kind of issues. However, 
you know, if if I, I'm not willing to put aside uh, that um, tactic, if you will, uh, as long as the other side is still doing it with other issues. So I, I think we're, we're going to face that, Joe, and, and it's very likely. You know, I don't think we'll get to the point of banning, you know, a federal ban of all weapons. You got to change the Constitution to, to really do that, and I don't think that's going to happen. But I could see states trying to do that to a degree. Uh, and I think you'll see people fight back. It's, we really shouldn't go down that slope. You know, I know pro gun people get, you know, laughed at because they're always talking about the slippery slope. Uh, now I'm taking it up a level and say, we really don't want to go down a slippery slope of ignoring our federal, uh, laws. It's the reason we have a Congress to pass them. Uh, and while there are certain subject areas that states and municipalities should have preeminence in, uh, there are others that they shouldn't. I think immigration law is a, a big one that is, is clearly a federal uh, area. Uh, firearms, uh, I, think, I think right now it is a state-level issue, but it could become federal uh, predominantly. So we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, that that's an, an interesting uh, cascading effect. Uh, and, you know, we saw that in Congress when Harry Reid was the the, uh, the uh, majority leader in the Senate, the Republican from Nevada. Uh, he put some policies in place that when the Republicans came back into the majority in the Senate, a lot of my Democrat uh acquaintances were going crazy, saying, how could Mitch McConnell do this? This is terrible. Look, he's being obstructionist. I said, you do realize he's doing the same stuff that Harry Reid was doing, right? So, well, that's different. And not one of them, and, and we're talking about intelligent people, lawyers, everybody, not one of them could ever explain to me how it was different other than it was their ox being gored this time, not not somebody else's. So. I think we need consistency in this country and uh, across the board, uh, but getting there is going to be tough. Yeah, I, I've seen some of those announcements. A lot of America's favorite sheriffs have uh, more or less announced that their municipalities are sanctuary and that they're not enforcing what they see to be unconstitutional gun laws. And I... Um, while I agree with the idea that Americans have a constitutional right, but also a natural right to protect themselves, I felt the same. It sounds like what you're describing. I felt the same unease about disregard for the letter of the law, even if it was a state law. And that is indeed a slippery slope. Uh, it's, yeah, just the way you described it is exactly right. Um, you know, I, I do think that it would, you know, we're, we're kind of poking at it a little bit, but on a large scale, it would force, uh, the democratic party to come crashing down on its own idea of sanctuary cities. If it came to the national four front of the conversation, um, I've had a lot of success in conversations, you know, with 
the people in my circles that I can try and influence. I've had a lot of success discussing sanctuary cities and immigration laws by drawing analogies to money, uh, because it really is as absurd as a state printing its own currency and using it in the economy. Uh, and for some reason, when I use that line of questioning and logic with someone, I, I think I've gained some ground. Um, so saying that for the listening audience, it, you know, you've got to form, you've got to form these opinions in ways that make sense. So they're defensible. Uh, but after that, you actually need to go out and talk to someone about it, asking questions, just like Steve's been saying, um, yeah, I think I think we've got time for for one more. So let's uh, flick. It's hard to choose. There are so many. There are so many things going on. I'm I'm gonna go to the big socialism question because that's that's in the news. Uh, we're seeing representatives from all over the place. I think one of the loudest right now being AOC. Um, <laughs> do you think that they're is going to be a resurgence of an American socialist party? Uh, well, I think there is a resurgence of the American socialist party. And unfortunately it's called the Democrat party uh, <laughs> because it, I don't think we're going to see a separate socialist party that suddenly becomes, you know, sort of co-equal with the two main parties, but there is a growing wing within the Democrat party uh, that is increasingly socialist in its views. Uh, and, and I don't mean just, you know, that they want to take care of people or, you know, they, they have a connection with labor. Uh, that's part of the Democrat party and always has been. Uh, but I think the degree to which they are chasing the extreme examples of the, the kind of policies and, and Congresswoman, uh, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is clearly the biggest proponent of this, uh, you know, some of her demands uh, are clearly outside of the traditional realm of the Democrat Party and into the realm of what a, the Socialist Party in America has demanded in the past or has campaigned for. Uh, so I, I think rather than seeing a separate party grow up, I think you're going to see a continued growth of that end of the Democrat Party, uh, which is going to influence the overall party uh, platform uh, in that direction. You know, the idea of the Green New Deal, which if you say the Green New Deal is just, well, we want to protect the environment. Okay, it's a little hard to disagree with that. We all want to protect the environment. But if you look at the specifics of the Green New Deal, some of them are, are kind of out there. Uh, you know, getting rid of fossil fuels in the next, you know, decade, uh, one, I think is scientifically impossible. Uh, you know, I live in, in the upper part of Michigan where it's really cold in the winter and almost everybody drives trucks. And I don't think everybody's ready to, you know, pay 75,000 or a hundred thousand dollars for an electric truck. Uh, and that's not counting trucks that haul all of our stuff all over the place, uh, you know, or, you know, electric airplanes. We're just not there yet. 
so, I mean, there's a lot of things in the Green New Deal that are imminently socialist because of the directive nature of them that I don't think we're there yet. But there are, are proponents that are pushing us in that direction. Um, you know, other things about the, the control of some of our, our social positions how that might affect a church and, and their faith positions, which a socialist says, well, we understand that, but you're just going to have to change your views because for the greater good, we got to do these policies. Uh, that sort of directive part of socialism that uh, a lot of its proponents don't like to have light shown on uh, is, is going to come more and more to the fore. And, and I think it's going to come from within the Democrat Party, not from a separate socialist party. Yeah, so it, if you are watching the news, and I know a lot of people are saying out there, hey, guys, just take a break from the news. But if you've been watching the news, you've likely seen um, that Virginia uh, representative, uh, Democratic woman named uh, Abigail Spanberger, came out with some heavy pushback against against the socialists, even saying socialist as part of the platform against defunding the police. Um, obviously, the party wasn't happy that details of this um, inside call were being leaked. But it's clear that there's conflict within the party about where they're headed. Um, so I know you don't have a crystal ball, um, but just likely outcomes. There, there are a lot of young uh, representatives in Congress that seem to be leaning socialists. There are a lot of what we're saying now are centrist Democrats. When I don't think that Abigail Spanberger is a centrist. I, I, I think that socialism is so far left that now they're saying that her views are centrist. So I know you don't have a crystal ball, but how do you predict this conflict playing out um, between what I would call a leftist and uh, what what is now being called centrist Democrats like Spanberger? Uh, well, I, I think the, the Democrat Party is going to have to figure out where it stands. Uh, it's going to be very tough for those centrists to, to dig their heels in when so many of the, the leading lights of, particularly among younger representatives, uh, are so far to the left of them and, and are essentially in the socialist uh, area, uh, it's going to be interesting. Some of who gets put, you know, if, if President Biden uh, wins the election in the final uh, count and is certified, uh, who he picks to be in his cabinet, not just the initial members of the cabinet, but, you know, after a couple months, if somebody leaves, who they get replaced with, uh, watching that dynamic will give you a, a good insight into which way they're going. Uh, and then depending on how the, the Congress comes out, uh, decide, you know, seeing which battles are won and, and which ones are lost, uh, as far as policy and law will also give you some insight. The, that's, that's me dodging the question. I don't know how the heck the, the Democrat party is going to come out. I don't know how the Republican party is going to come out. Because I think you'll see some changes there as well. Will the Republicans go further to the to the right, or will they move back to the center where you know a lot of the never Trumpers were? Uh, we don't know. Uh, but 
in both parties, there are deep divisions. And uh, we need to probably see some of that sorted out within those parties. Uh, or we're going to go to a system that is more akin to what you see in Europe, where you know the conservative parties are really, really far to the right of the whatever the liberal or the socialist parties are, which are really far to the left. Most of them in years past have looked at America and said, well, heck, if your politicians were in our country, they'd all be in the same party. Uh, I don't think you can say that anymore between the Republicans and the Democrats. There are at least wings of both parties that look more like their counterparts in Europe than, than what we used to see in the States. So there, there's going to be a lot of soul searching over the next couple of years, regardless of how the certification of the election goes. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where those lines finally fall. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not watching a lot of news, but I am on the edge of my seat uh, to see what comes of the Democrat Party, what comes of the Republican Party, frankly. Um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, that was, that's funny you say that's me dodging the question. Uh, so last question, every guest gets the same last question, and that is, Aside from official religious text, um, thinking the Holy Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, etc., if you could get every person on earth to read and understand one book, what would that book be and why? Oh, gosh. Um, one, uh, okay, I, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, <clears throat> not a specific book, but I have been reading several books on the period uh, of American history at the beginning. You know, I just finished reading uh, Hamilton. Uh, I'm currently uh, reading several books about the Civil War, not the battle part of it, but the political parts. Uh, I would encourage people uh, to read books about either of those periods uh, and understand that today is not the first time America has had really incredible schisms politically. Uh, and I, the reason I think it's instructive, Joe, is because people need to understand that America and its political system is actually pretty darn resilient, and it can face pretty big challenges. Uh, so I, I would recommend that people read, read Hamilton. That's a very readable book. It's, it's a big book and it's heavy, but it's worth it. Uh, and you know, it'll give you the, the actual facts behind the play. Uh, and, and then read some of these books, uh, uh, about the civil war period. Again, not necessarily the battles, but the political piece. I think, uh, it'll be very instructive to people to realize, wow, this new stuff that we're facing today is, is not as unique as we think it is. That's an excellent insight. I've, uh, you know, as I've found myself being discouraged uh, with the state of affairs, I've actually, it's funny because we didn't talk about this before, um, but I've actually been leaning on some of those same resources. Um, I've right now I'm reading our sacred honor by, I think William J. Bennett, um, uh, maybe a different author, but our sacred honor and just uh, 
reminding myself that I don't think it's likely the political leaders that we have, and especially when I look into the political thought and philosophy and, frankly, the intelligence of some of the uh, government officials we have, I don't think that they're capable enough to actually break what the founders designed because of what you said. Our, our system is incredibly resilient Excellent advice. Um, I, I'm going to heed that myself and dig into some more history. And, you know, this isn't the first time, this isn't even the second time that America's dealt with large uh, socialist agendas. Great, great advice. Steve, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations uh, and I, I always come away a better person from what I've learned from what you have to say. Um, that's it. Uh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Joe Mobley show. Remember to subscribe and make sure you don't miss out on future content. You can always show your support by leaving a review or making a financial contribution by going to the show.com and hitting support the show. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If that was the first prayer you've ever prayed, I hope it won't be the last. Until next time, this is The Joe Mobley Show.